Well, I do hope you're doing good, as uh, Pastor Chris said. Uh, there we are starting a new series today in the book of Second Samuel, uh, entitled "Unstoppable Kingdom." And uh, as he already mentioned, the the reason we're doing this uh, is because over the last couple of summers, we've taken some time uh, to dive into a section of Israel's history uh, that started a couple years ago when we looked at the book of Judges, and and then we went on to the book of Ruth, and then last summer we looked at First Samuel. And so today we want to continue on in that journey by uh, looking at Second Samuel over the next couple of weeks and months. And and uh, before we even get there, I just want to give you a disclaimer. Uh, actually, I have two disclaimers. Uh, the first is there are some really hard names to pronounce today. And so I would just uh, ask you for a little bit of grace on that. Um, the second is that this is a big book. It's got 24 chapters in it. And uh, we're, we're not going to be able to go uh, through it verse by verse like we have with other books of the Bible. And, and, and uh, so in light of that, I, I want to challenge you that, that maybe you should consider really diving deep into this book this summer. Maybe while you're having your own personal devotion times with the Lord, maybe uh, he would have you just uh, spend some time just reading this book. Maybe read through it a couple times. And the reason I I challenge you with that is so that when you show up on a Sunday morning, uh, you have a good idea of the context of what's going on in these stories. uh, Because, again, this is definitely going to be somewhat of a flyover. And so that's my disclaimer. Um, Let me just give you a couple reminders before uh, we dive into this book and before we jump into the Old Testament in general. And uh, the first reminder, I, I, uh, and these may be some things you already know, or, or maybe not, that's okay. Uh, the first one is that genre-wise, uh, the books of Samuel, uh, they're what some have called preached history. And what they mean by that is that, yes, this is real history. It's, it's accurate in regards to the facts and to what's going on. These were real human beings who lived on planet Earth, you know. In other words, this is not a, a collection of parables and fairy tales. But the thing to realize is this, this is also more than just a record of events and facts. It's more than just your American history book in, you know, junior year or whatever it was. And, and, and one commentator, he said it like this. And this idea of preached history, he said, the writer of Samuel is doing more than creating a historical record. He is writing with a purpose. What he records is never less than historical, but as we read it, we are being shown much more than reading history. We are being shown who God is and how he rules his people, and we are being shown Jesus, his Christ. And so again, just keep that in mind as we roll through this over the next couple of weeks, that this is preached history, and, and because of that... There are times when the stories uh, and the sequence of events aren't always chronological. Now, I know as Westerners, as Americans, that drives us crazy. <laughs> we just were like, why couldn't they just put it in order? But the thing you have to understand is, number one, they didn't think like that. And, and number two, they are way more interested in teaching and showing you something about God than they are in uh, just laying it out just so in, again, chronological order. Uh, this is something we even see with the gospel writers and and talking about Jesus's ministry. Oftentimes it was not in chronological order. They were grouping them in order to communicate a, a message. Uh, another reminder I want to mention to you, and, and this may be new to some of you, is that whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all capital letters, as opposed to the word Lord with just a capital L, uh, the thing you have to remember is that's referring to God's proper or or rather I should say that's referring to God's personal name, uh, which in the English we pronounce as Yahweh. 
And uh, there's this whole crazy history behind why the English translators chose to uh, to put it like that with Lord in all capital letters um, instead of Yahweh. And and frankly, I find it somewhat annoying and would prefer if they just used uh, the Lord's real name. Um, But the reason I mention it is that because as we go through this series, uh, if you hear me or one of the other pastors refer to God as Yahweh, I just wanted you to know what um, or rather to say who we're talking about. And so just to be clear, Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament is Yahweh. It's the God of the Bible. It's the God of Israel. Okay, one last reminder here before we dive in. You have to remember that the books of First and Second Samuel were written as one book. And so because of that, there's not a break in the story. And so we're going to need to do a little bit of recap in order to catch us up to uh, where we're at today as we open up to chapter 1. And so we've got a lot to cover I think this is going to be a great series. It's been a lot of fun over the last couple summers of uh, just diving into an Old Testament book. And uh, before we, we go there, though, let me just open us up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you that this is your word. God, thank you that the Bible is one unified story declaring who you are and what you came in Jesus to do and what you've promised to do. Uh, in the future, Lord. And so I just pray that even as we dive in this morning into one little section of it, that you uh, would open our eyes to see Jesus. Lord, I pray that all of us leave today just more in love with him, just more in awe of who he is and what he's done and what he will uh, continue to do. And so we bless you this morning, Lord. We ask you to be with us and to guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we get going here this morning, I want to just uh, start off by asking you a couple questions. And, and I want you to just keep these in your mind as we uh, begin the story today. And we'll kind of circle back around to them at the end. And, and the, the questions I want you to keep in mind is this. Do you really believe that God, uh, when he says he's going to do something, that he does it? Like, in other words, do you really believe that, that he's going to keep all of his promises? Like, even when you can't see him working... Even when it takes longer than you thought, even when it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't quite turn out like what you had pictured, do you still believe that he's faithful? And so again, I just want you to keep those in mind as we begin to roll uh, into this story here, because uh, I want to circle back around to that at the end. But before we can even get into this big, crazy story, and it is crazy, you're going to, if you, if you're not familiar with this, you're going to leave thinking, that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. It's, it's crazy. So it's, this is probably like a PG-13 kind of a Sunday. Um, not for sexual reasons, but for violence reasons. Uh, we'll see in a moment. Um, but let me just give you a little brief recap of, of what is going on here um, in the history of Israel and, and what's going on here in the story of Samuel. And uh, again, if you remember when we started this last year... Um, that this is, uh, this is, this is, uh, Israel has already been established as a nation at this point. And, uh, if you opened your Bible to the book of Genesis and started reading, one of the things you would find out, uh, at the very beginning is that God created this perfect world. But you don't have to go too far into it, or in fact, only a couple chapters, and you find out that we as human beings, we screwed things up. And, and we screwed them up really bad. And, um, the, the thing is, though, if you keep reading, though, you'll see that God didn't give up on us. He could have. He could have just wiped the slate clean and said, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm done with this, this idea. It didn't work out. 
But no, he doesn't do that. And, and if you kept reading in, Jesus, or in Genesis, you would find out that eventually, by chapter 12, he reveals himself to a man named Abraham. And not only did he reveal himself to Abraham, but he also made a promise and a covenant with him. And he told Abraham, he said, I'm going to make a great nation from you. And, and, and in doing so, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. He also told Abraham, I'm going to, uh, he made this covenant in regards to the land. And, and he said, I'm going to give you this land for your ancestors to inherit. And I think this is really significant because it's the beginning of God calling out a people for himself. And not only calling out a people for himself, but he's even tying himself to them through these promises and covenants. Well, from this point on, if you would continue to read the story, you would see that Abraham does go on, in fact, and have a son. And it's an amazing story, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And in having this son, it marks the birth of a new nation called Israel. And God would go on to confirm his covenant with Abraham's descendants. But eventually, uh, some time would go by and they would find themselves as a nation enslaved in Egypt. However, after uh, hundreds of years, God would then raise up a new man, a guy named Moses, who would be used by God to free the people of Israel from Egypt. And, and as part of that, the plan was to then take them into that land that God had promised Abraham. But as they begin on their journey, again, it's an amazing story. The Red Sea, it parts, they go through it. As they begin to go into this land, on the way, they begin to disobey God. In fact, they, they, they mess things up. They build a golden calf and bow down and worship it. And there's other things that happen that show the, the rebellion that's going on in their hearts. And so as a result, they're not allowed to go into the promised land, but instead their children do. And so their children go in. You can read about that in the book of Joshua. Um, but God told them to, uh, to wipe out the nations that were there. And we don't really have time this morning to talk about why that was a justified thing for the Lord to do. But, but the, the point is, is that they didn't do it. They didn't totally obey God and what he had commanded them to do. And, and so because of that disobedience, that led to a time in Israel's history where they would suffer all kinds of issues and oppression from other nations. And in that, while they were being oppressed by these other nations, they would, uh, would kind of come to their senses at different points and they would cry out to God and, and, and they would say, save us. And he would raise up these judges to, to come and to deliver them. And that's what the book of Judges is all about. And it's a, a dark and it's a messy book. There really are some disturbing stories and events in it. And that's why one of the things at the end of the book you hear repeated over and over again is that in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so that book ends with you really longing for and, and looking forward to a king. And so then that brings us up to 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, you'll remember when we started it last year that, that the people right away began begging Yahweh for a king. But they do so for wrong reasons. They say, they say, Lord, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations. And so God relents and he gives them a king, but he gives them a king specifically like they asked for. In fact, the first king of Israel, his name is Saul, which literally means asked for. And he's tall and he's dark and he's handsome. But he does not love God and he does not fear him. And eventually he too disobeys the Lord. And as a result, Yahweh rejects him as king and instead anoints this little shepherd boy named David. And uh, 
we obviously don't have time to get into all of the details of this story, but, but because of Yahweh rejecting Saul and anointing David, this will lead to all kinds of conflict between David and Saul. And the rest of 1 Samuel is the story of Saul uh, trying to track David down in order to take his life. And, and in light of that, it, just, it goes to show uh, just how unfit uh, Saul was to be Israel's king. Just how unfit he was to be the one to represent Yahweh and all that he stands for. And so again, fast forward, long story short, because of Saul trying to kill David, David is ultimately forced into fleeing to Israel's enemies. And one of Israel's enemies was a nation uh, uh, called uh, the Philistines. And so he runs to them for safety. The king of the Philistines uh, gives him the city Ziglag to, to stay in. And we're getting, so hang with me here because we're finally getting close to where 2 Samuel starts. <laughs> Hopefully I haven't lost you yet. So David is living with the Philistines. And one day they end up going out to war against Israel. And so David, because he was living with them and was a warrior, he starts to head out with the Philistines. Well, these Philistine commanders look around and they see David and his men and they, they say to the king, uh, the king of the Philistines, no way is this guy going out with us. Like, I know he's been living among us for a while, but we're just afraid if we get out in the heat of battle, he's going to look over and see his brothers over in Israel. And, and this will be a perfect opportunity for him to, to switch sides and to get back in the good graces of, of Israel and of King Saul. And so, no, we don't want him to go. And so the, the king's like, all right, I guess you're right. And so they send David and his men back home. Well, the problem is, is when David and his men get back home, they find out uh, that they've been attacked. And the reason they know they've been attacked is because their houses are all burned down and their wives and their children are missing. And through some divine circumstances and, and this, you know, this, uh, I think he's an Egyptian man just shows up out of nowhere. He ends up telling them what happened. And they find out that it was actually the Amalekites who had done this, who had attacked them. Now, the reason that that's significant is because the Amalekites were the very ones who Saul was told uh, to totally destroy um, back in earlier in first Samuel. But he didn't do it. And so this is the whole reason why God rejected him as king in the first place. And now you have this same group coming and attacking David. And so that that's happening. David uh, and his men, they chased them down. They totally whip them. They get their wives back. They get their children back and they get all of this plunder. And meanwhile, while that's going on, Israel is in the midst of this heated battle against the Philistines. And so in the last chapter of chapter 31 of first Samuel, we find out what happens. And what happened is, is that Israel was utterly defeated by the Philistines. And not only that, but we find out that Saul and three of his sons are dead as a result. Uh, one of which was Jonathan, who was David's best friend. But not only that, we also learn in chapter 31 exactly how Saul died. And what we're told there is that uh, during the midst of this battle, he got shot uh, by the archers, the Philistine archers. And he was wounded so badly that he turns to his armor bearer and he says, will you take my life? In other words, it's like, you know, a sick dog. Will you just you put me out of my misery? And the armor bearer refuses to do it. He, he just won't do it. And so as a result, we're told that Saul instead falls on his sword and he kills himself. And so with all of that as a, a brief recap, this brings us up to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And so uh, if you want to follow along, I'd encourage you to do that. We're going to try to cover a lot here today. Uh, you can open up to page 254 in our pew Bibles, or it's on 2 Samuel chapter 1 in your regular Bible. If you don't know where that is, there's a table of contents. It'll help you out. And so let's turn there. 
And so let me just start reading in verse 1 of 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and he paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And the young man who had told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I, I answered him, I said, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and his armlet that was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and he said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. All right, let's stop right there. So we're told here now by the narrator that David and his men are back in the city of Ziklag. And again, that's that city that the Philistines had given him. But on the third day after having got their wives and children back, this man shows up. And uh, he, he, he has some news for David. And he's uh, come from uh, the battle with the Philistines. And uh, as you read through this story, what is it that sticks out to you? Well, there's a couple things I think that sticks out that are interesting. Um, the first thing that's interesting, if not ironic, is the fact that he himself is an Amalekite. I mean, who did David just get done fighting and defeating? It was the Amalekites. And yet here is one standing before David, and he is delivering this news of Saul and Jonathan's death. I think it's also interesting that his account of how Saul died is different from the narrator's account in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And so what's the deal with that? Well, it's maybe possible that he had some added details that the narrator chose not to include yet. But, but actually, what most commentators think happened is that he's lying. They think that, that, that he most likely was there at the battle and perhaps he was kind of sorting through the dead bodies and collecting, you know, I don't know, swords and whatever else he could find for himself. Or, or perhaps he was even there and he overheard Saul's conversation with his armor bearer where he asked his armor bearer to take his life. And so maybe he thought, this is my opportunity. I'm going to, you know, get all this stuff. I'm going to get the crown and the armlet. And I'm going to take it to David. And this is going to be my way to cash in. Well... What this guy didn't know at the time was that David had just gotten back from striking down the Amalekites. And um, 
It's as if the narrator is giving us a hint that this is not going to work out well for this guy. <laughs> and so the, the guy, he, he, you know, he had to probably start getting nervous at some point. He, he most likely got nervous when after he told David this, David tore his, his clothes and started crying. He's probably thinking, hmm, that's not quite how I had rehearsed it in my mind. You know, I was picturing him to fall down and be like, oh, thank you so much for finally taking Saul's life. Here, you can be my right hand man in my new kingdom. But that's not what happens. David begins to mourn and to lament. And, and you know he definitely got nervous when, when David started asking him some more specific questions in, chapter th- or in verse 13. David's like, uh, who, where did you say you were from again? Did, did you say an Amalekite? Are you an Amalekite? Mm, that's interesting. Um, and, and how is it that you thought it was okay to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then boom, he, he sends the orders to have him executed. And I know it maybe seems harsh and we have to wrestle through what's going on here. But the thing you have to realize is this. Even though Yahweh had told David that he would be king over Israel, David for himself refused to take matters into his own hands by taking Saul's life. He he refused to snatch the crown away from Saul. And instead, he chose to rather rely on the Lord and to rely on his timing, not his own. And so here we have one of David and Israel's enemies, an Amalekite, claiming to have taken Saul's life. And yet now we realize that most likely he was lying. And yet in the end, far from being rewarded for his actions, he's executed instead. And again, you have to, you have to kind of catch this. The irony here in this opening story is so thick. Uh, one commentator, he said it this way. Saul lost his kingdom because he plundered the Amalekites against God's strict orders. Now an Amalekite has plundered him. Saul claimed to have wiped out the Amalekites, but he did not. Now an Amalekite, an Amalekite claims to have wiped out Saul, but he did not. Saul died because he failed to strike down the Amalekites. And so the Christ of Israel, her anointed king, is dead. Immediately, David returns to center stage. And what has he been doing? Striking down the Amalekites. The message is clear He, David, is the Christ, the anointed one, that Saul was not. And so Jonathan and Saul are dead, and the rest of chapter 1 is a a lament that David wrote to to publicly honor them, and he would have done this before the people. And we don't really have time to to get into the specifics there, but but one of the things as I thought about it is that I, I think it really illustrates one of the markers of God's true king. Of God's truly anointed one, it's, it's that, they, 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 uh, that they love their enemies. That they don't find pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I think this is just one of the small ways, even here in chapter 1, through the life of David, that we see Jesus being foreshadowed. You see, David may have honored his enemies here, but King Jesus died for his enemies. And so, again, that's the big idea of this whole book as we go on is that that Jesus was the true and the better David. He's the one that that David foreshadowed. We see Jesus through the things that David did well and we see Jesus through the things that David failed in because Jesus didn't fail in them. And so just keep that in mind as we go through these chapters here. And so uh, David laments the deaths of uh, King Saul and Jonathan. And then let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. 
And David said, to which shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives, again, a hard name of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up the men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and they anointed David as king over the house of Judah. Okay, so verse one here of chapter two, it highlights, I think, David's faith and his dependency on the Lord. He inquires of the Lord about what his next move should be. And, he, you know, you got to remember, he's still living in this Philistine territory. And he says, Lord, shall I go up to Judah? And if so, what city? And the Lord very clearly tells him, yes, I want you to go to Judah and I want you to go to the city of Hebron. And this is very significant because Hebron in many ways was the city of Abraham. It's where Abraham lived. It's where he and his immediate family were buried after they died. And so uh, what God is doing here in telling David to go to Hebron is I think he's tying him into the promises and the covenant of Abraham. Which again is farther evidence that, and proof that David, not Saul, is Yahweh's choice for king. And what we see in verse 4 is that the people of Judah recognize this. That they're the first to get on board with what God is doing. And they come and they anoint David as king over their tribe. Now, in contrast to that, if we skip to verse 8, we find out that Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, that he comes and he takes Ishbosheth, one of Saul's remaining sons, and he makes him king over the remaining 11 tribes. And so here you have David king over Judah and you have Ishbosheth, Saul's son, king over the rest of Israel. And so what this means is that the nation of Israel is divided. And so just keep that in mind here as we keep moving. Look at verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, the servant of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, he went out from Mahanam to Gibeon and Joab, the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met him at the pool of Gibeon and they sat down. The one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise uh, and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number 12 from Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side so that they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called some crazy name, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Okay, so again, Israel, in terms of their loyalty, is divided at this point. And here we read that one day uh, there was a standoff between the two sides. And so Abner, who was the commander of, of Saul's army, he yells over to the other side. He says, hey, let us let the men compete before us. And it's a little unclear of what was originally uh, supposed to happen. But what we know happened is that things got out of hand real quickly. And as I was reading, I couldn't help but think of uh, one of the few books that I actually read in high school, which was, as opposed to just spark noting it on, online, um, was the book The Outsiders. Johnny Boy, Pony Boy, any, or Pony Boy, Johnny, anyone? Great book. Oh, yeah. Greasers versus the Socias. All right. Never mind. Um, there's this great eighties movie where they do it and you get to see a who's who of celebrities. So maybe you should watch that. But, um, let me just, uh, summarize what's going on here. So these men, they, they come together 
And again, there's some sort of, it's a little unclear if this was supposed to be battle or if it was supposed to, I don't know, you know, uh, fencing or something. But either way, it turns deadly. And what that does is this sparks uh, an all-out battle. And so the men begin to fight each other. And, and, and during this, one of Joab's brothers begins to pursue Abner. And so Abner is kind of fleeing and this man begins to chase him down. And as he's running, Abner looks behind him and he recognizes that it's one of Joab's brothers. And he says, hey, hey, buddy, stop following me. <laughs> you know, I don't want to have to hurt you. And, and uh, this, this brother's like, no way, like you're mine. And so Abner warns him another time. He says, you, you need to stop. And, and, and he continues to do it. And so finally, Abner ends up uh, stabbing uh, Osiel, this, this brother of Joab, uh, in the stomach with the butt of his spear and he kills him. Well, Joab eventually finds his, his fallen brother and he realizes it. And so him and his other brother, Abishai, they begin to pursue Abner. But Abner eventually, he, he kind of gets to a place where he can, uh, they kind of stop the chase. And he yells over to him, guys, how far are we going to let this go? And specifically in verse 26, he says this. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn off from pursuit of their brothers. And so Joab calls this whole thing off. And in verse 30, we get a summary of the damage, which says this. And when he, Joab, had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants, 19 men beside Osiel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And so David's side has overwhelmingly won this particular battle. But, but unfortunately, this goes on to lead to an all-out civil war, civil war. In the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, it describes it this way. And there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Well, from here, the rest of chapter three describes in a bizarre twist of events how Abner eventually ends up on David's side. And what happens is that Ishbosheth, uh, Saul's son, who's the king of Israel, uh, he, he accuses Abner of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines. And it's a little unclear of whether or not Abner actually did it. But but uh, and if you don't know what a concubine is, you can ask Pastor Chris at the picnic. He said he would be more than happy to, to let you know. Um, so we're unsure if, if, if it actually happened, but either way, it really makes Abner mad. And he's like, fine, fine. If, you, if you're, if you're going to disrespect me like that and call me out on these things, then I'm going to go over to David's side. And in verse 9, he says this. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over the house of Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And so Abner here in verse 9, he, uh, he weirdly refers to himself in the third person, which is always interesting. You meet those people and they talk about it. It's like, what? What's wrong with you? Um, so he does that. And he declares to Ishbosheth that he's going to help make David king over all of Israel. Which, let's be honest, that's, that's pretty laughable, right? Here's Abner saying, I'm going to make David king over Israel, like what God's promised to do. And I think it's laughable, but not only that, it also reveals to us that Abner, he, in saying that he was going to, to do what Yahweh promised, he's admitting that he knew that Yahweh promised to do that. And so this gives us an insight into his character. 
Because he knew that that's what Yahweh had promised, and yet he goes on uh, and makes Ishbosheth the king over Israel. And so we see here that he directly disobeyed what the Lord wanted. And I think the thing that, that we have to think about is that, you know, someone like Abner, and uh, he's really a hard case. I mean, he has some qualities, the, some moments of being a decent man, like when he warns Joab's brother uh, to, to stop pursuing him so he didn't have to hurt him. But then here we see a moment where he, he just shows how rebellious and sinful he is. And the truth is that, that when you think about all these characters in this story, uh, you think about these, these men and women, uh, they really are kind of a mixed bag. It's hard sometimes to know who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, because they're, at the end of the day, they're all very broken and sinful. And that's true even of David himself. Well, from this point, Abner will contact David and he says he wants to join up with him. And David says, okay, but when you come, bring my wife, Michael, which was one of Saul's daughters that that David had been married to. And so Abner comes, he brings Michael. Um, David uh, offers Abner peace, which essentially means David was offering him safety. He was saying, okay, you're you're now in, You're, you're part of the group here. Well, the problem is, is that Joab wasn't in the town when uh, when David did this. And so Joab shows up and he he finds out what happened and he finds out that Abner has been granted uh, peace from David and he's really upset. And so he requests a private meeting with Abner. And and while they're in this meeting, uh, Joab kills Abner in cold blood. And David, um, he finds out what happened and he's really upset. And he's really upset because Joab had no right to do that. Yes, yes, his brother had been killed, but his brother had been killed in battle. This was now, uh, this guy had been granted peace from David. And, and not only that, but the city of Hebron where they're at was one of the, the refugee cities that God had given in the Old Testament in Joshua as a place that someone could flee to and, and get some immunity. And, and yet here is Joab striking him down in cold blood. And so David, uh, again, is very upset by this, and he begins to pronounce some curses on Joab and on his family for killing an innocent man. And from there, David will go on to lament uh, the death of Abner. And he does it in a very public way. Again, just like in chapter 1, he mourns and laments in a way that, that the rest of the people can see him. And as a result, we read in chapter, or in chapter 3, verse 37, this. And all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner, son of Ner, to death. And so David is cleared of any wrongdoing, which again is important because it shows us that he refused to take the kingdom by force or to take it through these corrupt means. But then the scene will now shift back to Ishbosheth, and we're told in chapter 4, verse 1, that when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. And so both Israel and their king uh, are, have become disheartened because not only has their top commander defected to the other side, but now, in fact, he is dead. And things only get worse because the rest of chapter 4 describes and details how uh, this coup that takes place within um, Israel, within uh, Ishbosheth's side. And what happens is these two thugs from, from the tribe of Benjamin, um, they, they go to Ishbosheth's house. And while he's sleeping and taking a nap, they, they stab him and kill him. And again, I, I, as I said, this is a little PG-13. and It's just crazy. There's just all this bloodshed in these first four chapters. And unfortunately, it's not quite over yet because these two men, 
they take uh, Ishbosheth's cut off head to King David, and and they again think that they're going to be rewarded for this, uh, that he's going to be happy. And yet, just like the Amalekite in chapter one, they are sadly mistaken. And we read this in verse nine. But David answered Rehoboam and Benai, his brother, the sons of Rimeon, and I don't know. I'm giving up. It's so painful. Um, I thought about just pulling out my phone and playing like the the voice recording, uh, but I probably would have screwed it up. But um, anyway, these two men, these bad guys, these thugs, uh, this is what David says to them. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house and in his own bed? Shall I now not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So David once again punishes some wicked men who took matters into their own hands. And he executes justice towards the house of Saul. And one of the things that's so cool about the way that the author of Samuel has arranged these four chapters is that he's put them into a chiastic structure. And in case you don't know what a chiastic structure is, it's a it's a Hebrew literary device. And and what happens in it is that the the uh, second half of the story or the poem, it in some way mirrors the first half. And so we have a, an example of it here. And so let's look at this. In chapter one, we read that David executed the purported murderer of Saul. And so that would be a. But then in chapter four, uh, a prime, we read and. Uh, that David executes the murders of Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Does that make sense? So it's happened in chapter one. It happens in chapter four. It's mirrored again later. Then in the rest of chapter one, we read in B that David laments Saul and Jonathan's death. At the end of chapter three, we read that David laments Abner's death. In chapter two, we read that there's a struggle between the house of David and the house of Saul. In chapter 3, we read that there's a struggle between Abner and Joab. Again, representation of the house of David and the house of Saul. And then right in the middle there, at the beginning of chapter 3, we have uh, David's house. And so one of the things about a chiastic structure is that oftentimes the middle event, or the one that doesn't have a mirror, that is the main point that the author wants to drive home to you. And so what is this big idea about David's house? Well, if we go back to chapter three, verse one, again, it says this. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. Now, let's stop there. I I think that the narrator is trying to highlight and point out two things for us. One of them is positive, but the other one is negative. And I think by looking at these and seeing what the narrator is trying to drive home, we're going to learn some lessons about God and about how he works. And so let's look at the first lesson first, the positive lesson first, not the first, the positive lesson first. I think the author here in constructing this chiastic structure is trying to point out to us the faithfulness of God. And the reason I think that is because God rejected Saul as his king all the way back in 1 Samuel 15. 
And in the next chapter, he anoints David as king over Israel. And yet it's been all of these years and that has not taken place yet. And yet at this point in the story, David is now a king. Now, he's only a king over one little tribe. He's not he's not yet. The the promise hasn't fully been fulfilled, but it's on its way. And I think when he says there that David's house grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker, he's he's giving us some uh, clues that this will happen, that God is on the move. He's he's going to do what he said he's going to do. You see, I think when we look at this, the thing that we have to understand is that this is one of the principles that, that God oftentimes uh, he lives by. And it's this idea of, of not despising the things of small beginnings. You see, David is in fact a king at this point. He became king uh, of Judah in chapter 2. And on the surface, that may seem insignificant. It seems like, man, God isn't keeping his promises. This isn't quite working out like what we thought. I, I just don't understand why, why David isn't uh, king over all of Israel yet. But yet that's oftentimes how, how the Lord works. Again, it'd be easy to look at that and to scoff and to think, well, I mean, I guess technically he's a king, but, but again, it's, it's insignificant. It's, it's, it's just, but it, the, the point is that it's a beginning. Because for the first time ever, think about this. For the first time ever in the history of the world, at this point, God's chosen king is visibly reigning on the earth. You see, Saul was not God's chosen king. That was the people's king. David was God's chosen king. And for the first time ever, God has a king reigning on the earth. In fact, one commentator said this, Here, for the first time, Yahweh's chosen king visibly rules on earth. It's a small beginning, but it is the kingdom of God, concrete, visible, earthy. And as already hinted at, Zechariah 4.10 would say, Don't despise the day of a small beginning. Again, I, I don't know why the Lord does it like this some, sometimes, but he does. In fact, it's one of the principles of the kingdom of God. Jesus even told uh, his disciples through a parable. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds. And yet when it's fully grown, it's, it's the size of a tree. You see, while David was waiting to become king over all of Israel, his kingdom was growing. As it says there in chapter three, his house grew stronger and stronger. And, and the reality is, is the same is true today of Jesus's kingdom. Jesus will one day be king over all. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. It, it's going to happen. And even now, his kingdom is growing and it's expanding all across the world. And so that's the positive lesson we learn in these chapters, not to despise the day of small beginnings, to remember that God is faithful he will accomplish what he's promised. We need to look at this negative lesson, though, because it's going to be instructive through the rest of the book. And, and the negative lesson, it's, it's somewhat subtle. But right after saying that David's house was growing stronger and stronger and Saul's house was growing weaker and weaker, we're told this in verse 2. And sons were born to David at Hebron. And you're probably thinking, well, what's so negative about having sons? Well, do you have any sons? Um, I have two of them. No, I'm just kidding. I love them. They're wonderful. No, that's not the point. It's, it's not sons are negative. It's, it's why he's having sons. And again, it's a little bit subtle there. But if you would take time to dig into uh, verse, the rest of two and, and the verses following that, you would see that David had six sons from six different women during his time at Hebron. 
Now, again, maybe that's like, well, that's what they did. Well, here's the reason it's a big deal. It's a big deal because we're told earlier that when he first came to Hebron, he had two wives. And the reason that now that he has an additional six and he's having six, he's had six sons with them. The reason that's concerning is because Deuteronomy 17 very clearly lays out Israel, uh, lays out the law for Israel's kings. And what we're told there is that their kings were not to take many wives. And so already before David has even been anointed king over Israel, we're already starting to see some cracks in his armor. We're starting to see some cracks in his character that that will begin to bear fruit as the book moves on. And the thing is, is if you look at this list of sons that are born, you're going to recognize a couple of their names and you're going to know their names for not good reasons because they're going to show up later on in the story. See, here's the thing you have to come to grips with. David is a complicated character. There are times when you read about him and you really do like him and you think, man, this guy's awesome. I want to be like this. This is a a man after God's own heart, as we're told in 1 Samuel. However, there will be these other times, and we're even seeing it now, where he completely disappoints you, where he does not reflect the character of God and of God's anointed. You see, we have to understand that David is not an out-and-out wicked man. He is, in fact, a man after God's own heart, but he is a man. He is human. He needs grace and he needs a savior just like you and me. You see, the world didn't just need a good king. No, we needed a perfect king. We needed a king who who not only obeyed when it was convenient, but who obeyed when it cost him something. And fortunately for us, that king did come and his name's Jesus. And he's the one that we look to. He's the one that we we give our lives to. He's the one who's who's worthy of our worship. He's the reason that we've gathered this morning. And yet, as we walk through this story of 2 Samuel, we're going to see that David does foreshadow him. That the Lord is teaching us something about what it looks like when God's king comes and reigns on the earth. And so for now, let's close in prayer. Let's begin to turn our hearts and our minds back towards this King Jesus as we sing to him, as we give of our tithes and offerings to him. And so let's pray. Jesus, you are indeed worthy of all of our lives. Lord, even as we sang uh, before the message, Lord, just the amazing power that's just even in your name. How beautiful the name of Jesus is. It's the reason we pray in your name, Lord. It's because of who you are. Lord, let's pray now that, Lord, even as we continue to move throughout the rest of the service, that all of us could just turn our hearts and our eyes towards you. That again, as we prayed earlier, that we'd be able to see Jesus more clearly. We'd fall deeper and deeper in love with him, and it would begin to change our lives. Lord, for ones here who maybe have never met Jesus, that that today would be the day that they, they, for the first time, they turn their eyes towards him and they say, I need a savior. I like David, I, I mess things up, I'm, I'm not perfect, I, I disobey. Now for the first time, maybe they would do that, they would turn their hearts to him and just, just cry out to you and say, Lord, I need help, I need you, I need Jesus. And so Lord, just as we uh, again close here, help us just to worship you, help us just to enjoy your presence. Thank you that you're here through the power of the Holy Spirit. We bless you, Lord, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.